Eliana, have you ever heard of Angel Tears? Angel Tears? Yes. I have you want to guess no what I... that is? You want to guess what that is? Um, I could try to go ahead, but I might be a bit biased because I know whom we are interviewing. Fair enough. Fair enough. The Science Basement! Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Giuliano. And I'm your co-host, Eleana. And today we'll take our yellow submarine for a ride, trying to get some good old science out of blotters, deems, angel tears, mushies, or as most boring of us, including myself, know them as psychedelics. And to guide us through these strawberry fields of neuroscience, we have Rafael Moliner, a PhD student working in the Neuroscience Center at the University of Helsinki, specifically in Ero Kassen's laboratory, studying psychedelics and brain plasticity. Rafael, how are you today? Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Thank you for accepting. So, first of all, let's start from the very beginning. You study psychedelics. What are they? Well, psychedelics are drugs with some of the most extraordinary effects on the human mind. LSD, psilocybin, the active compound of uh, magic mushrooms, DMT of the Amazonian hallucinogenic brew ayahuasca, or mescaline extracted from the peyote cactus, which is also hallucinogenic, are some of the most widely known psychedelics. They have in common their transient effect on altering the way people perceive the world, causing what we ordinarily call hallucinations. But their effects go well beyond hallucinations as the altered state of consciousness that psychedelics produce is often described as carrying deep emotional meaning to individuals undergoing a psychedelic experience. The psychedelic experience is usually compared to mystical or near-death experiences. Many people have difficulty putting into words what they experience while under the effect of psychedelics. But a phenomenon known as ego dissolution, when uh, what is uh, you and what is uh, something else starts to blur, seems to hold an important role in peak psychedelic experiences. At least this is what researchers are finding in recent clinical trials aimed at using psychedelics to treat difficult to address mental illnesses such as depression or addiction. The, the way you describe them, they sound really cool, but correct me if I'm wrong, they're classified as illegal, aren't they? Yes, that's uh, right. For most of countries in the world, at least, uh, Back in the late 60s and beginning of the 70s, psychedelics became associated with the counterculture movement, and the mass media was publishing pieces about hippies, LSD, and immorality on an almost daily basis. It didn't take long for them to be banned in the US and many other countries once they became heavily politicized. And ever since, psychedelics have remained under the same label as very dangerous narcotics of the likes of heroin. What many people don't know is that before that, during the 50s and early 60s, is that LSD and other uh, psychedelic drugs uh, were a very hot topic among psychiatrists. And they were researching their therapeutic potential to treat depression, anxiety, addiction, and quite many other nervous disorders. Once they were banned, psychedelic research came to an almost full stop, or until very recently that uh, would be, when we again started to research the therapeutic potential of these very unuseful drugs, but with more advanced techniques and methodology this time. You mentioned they 
were used for treating addiction. So they're not addictive themselves. Like, are psychedelics addictive? Well, this actually is a very fair point because being classified with other highly addictive substances may lead people to think that they are actually very addictive. From a legal point of view, not a pharmacological one, they are categorized as narcotic drugs at the same level as other highly addictive substances such as heroin that you will probably know. But in fact, the psychedelics rank very low in their addictive potential in population studies, where they are compared to commonly abused drugs such as uh, alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, heroin, uh, or even caffeine. And uh, by the way, they also rank uh, much lower than all these drugs in terms of toxicity when looking at their active to lethal dose ratio. That would be the ratio that determines uh, how much drug you have to take for it to have an effect on uh, your mind or your brain to how much drug you need to take for it to, well, kill you. Uh, reports of uh, lethal overdosing with psychedelics are very rare. And in the few cases reported, they often involve other drugs such as alcohol. This is, however, not to say that psychedelics are completely safe. It is uh, very important to understand that psychedelics can lead to dangerous outcomes if not administered by a trained professional under the right conditions. The distortions that they produce in perception may sometimes lead individuals into adopting, uh, let's call it uh, some kind of risky behaviors, and uh, may even produce panic attacks with long-lasting psychological consequence consequences if uh, not dealt with correctly. May I ask then now a question, because you were mentioning LSD and the hippies back in the 60s, but also later on, there was a big scandal, if I remember right, with a medicine that was heavily prescribed for uh, uh, dealing with pain, and that was oxycodone. And it was causing this kind of euphoria that was making people feel better and feel their pain less, and therefore uh, created a whole cult of people illegally trying to get access to it uh, and use it as a drug. So I was wondering, because I think that's an opioid medication. So are psychedelics opioids and how different they are uh, in terms of oxycodone in danger of becoming addictive if you are using it as a medication? So that's uh, a very good question as well. Uh, I want to clarify that like uh, opioids like oxycodone or heroin have nothing to do with uh, psychedelics, at least in what we know of their mechanisms of action at the molecular and cellular level. Oxycodone is definitely one of the most important drugs behind the opioid crisis that has plagued the US and other countries in recent years. But uh, paradoxically, psychedelics could be a great asset to address the opioid crisis, as shown by the preliminary research done with uh, ibogaine or LSD, among other drugs uh, that uh, have hallucinogenic properties to treat uh, substance use disorders. So yeah, not much to do with oxycodone in the way they act actually could be useful to treat the addiction that they produce. And you said that they can be used uh, in in order to deal with depression um, uh, and uh, in a different way than a classic antidepressant works, but how exactly does that go? Well, this is a key question, Eleana, and probably the main reason why psychedelics are catching the attention of neuroscientists and psychiatrists once again. While classical antidepressants like uh, fluoxetine, the commercial name is Prozac, probably many people have heard or even 
use them. Or escitalopram are the most commonly used uh, treatments for depression. They have to be taken daily for extended periods of time, however, and still take several weeks until the onset of therapeutic effects. And those aren't their biggest problems. The real problem of uh, conventional antidepressants is that up to two thirds of depressed patients using conventional antidepressants don't fully respond or don't respond at all to that treatment. So why psychedelics should be better? We still need to do much more research to have a definitive answer, but the preliminary results uh, from clinical studies around the world suggest that with a single or a few doses of psychedelics like psilocybin, the symptoms of depression improve uh, significantly in a matter of hours in contrast with weeks. And the therapeutic improvement can be sustained for several months. If confirmed by future larger studies, this could represent a revolution in the way we treat depression and other psychiatric disorders. Wait, you're telling me that antidepressants drugs, so drugs that by profession should treat depression, take weeks to months to show show actual effects on the symptoms. But you're telling me that one single dose of a psychedelic would show symptom improvements in a matter of hours. Indeed, that's what uh, recent uh, research is unveiling. And uh, here is where like the interest uh, lays for uh, most psychiatrists and uh, neuroscientists doing research with these drugs. We still don't really know what is the mechanism or the full explanation of uh, why this is happening, but definitely worth of uh, more research, if you ask me. I mean, like, indeed, this is very impressive. And I would imagine that people might just go out on the streets now and say we want uh, psychedelics because they work way faster than a normal antidepressant. Yeah, um, please, let, let, let's highlight this is just research for the moment. Exactly. We're not advi- advising anyone to take anything. <laughs> Completely. But- but just to understand, like, how does that research go? So I guess there that involves some kind of uh, trials, like clinical trials that were mentioned, I think, a little bit earlier. So maybe you can explain how do these uh, clinical trials that involve psychedelics, uh, dr- psychedelic drugs work? Totally. Uh, well, first of all, in relation to using the, the drugs like recreationally or outside of these kind of clinical settings is something that is uh, not advisable at all. Because, uh, well, I must point out that psychedelics are no silver bullet. Uh, to be therapeutic, psychedelics need to be administered under strictly controlled conditions under the close supervision of trained psychotherapists and psychiatrists. Because, uh, well, It's also known that uh, it's unlikely psychedelics uh, will absolutely benefit everyone that is treated with them. As some participants in clinical trials uh, with psychedelics have relapsed back into depression after some time. In uh, regards to how these clinical trials uh, work, first of all, patients are uh, thoroughly screened for pre-existing conditions before they can be admitted for treatment with psychedelics. And a family history of psychosis, for instance, uh, may disqualify them, as there is concern that psychedelics may trigger irreversible psychotic events in those people. Thankfully, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any such reports among the thousands of participants in modern clinical trials with psychedelics. And in fact, uh, if something can be extracted from those recent trials is that psychedelics are safe when administered by trained professionals in a clinical setting. And uh, The way it goes is basically that 
the clinicians or the researchers will take the candidates, the participants, uh, into some sort of preparation to what they should expect and how the psychedelic treatment is going to be because it can be very emotionally intense. And of course, the perceptual distortions may make some people that are not familiar with these drugs uh, be quite afraid. Then um, on the day of the doses of the psychedelic administration, the participant will be accompanied by a trained psychiatrist and therapist. And usually there is a psychiatrist around also to make sure that everything is under control and uh, it can bring the the experience to a stop actually with some uh, drugs like benzodiazepines to decrease the anxiety if it gets a bit out of hand. But the setting is uh, usually a very comfortable environment with plenty of pillows. The participant will lay down, will have uh, blinds that will cover the eyes and will be promoted to just focused on their experience. It is true that some people may think, oh, this doesn't sound too boring, but uh, well, if you read uh, or hear what uh, these participants will be experiencing, uh, well, it's it's quite intense. So I don't think that um, anyone will fall asleep under the, the treatment. Maybe then, some Beatles playing in the background, just to give the mood. Some people actually add uh, music to the experience, and there is some research showing that a particular kind of music may enhance the therapeutic uh, effect of, uh, of a psychedelic experience. And then after the psychedelic experience comes to an end, that usually it takes it's a matter of hours until the acute effects of the drug will come down, meaning like the perceptual distortions and these very emotional experiences, like for instance, ego dissolution, that is something I mentioned that people may experience. Then um, they will go through the experience with the therapists. And in the following days, there is a a series of uh, what they call integration sessions where they again go through the experience and try to put everything in place. Because during these acute experiences, Many of the participants, of course, report uh, kind of uh, very deep uh, emotional experiences that relate to past trauma during their childhood, for instance, or things that they had very deep inside and has uh, caused them problem to the point that in most, if not all cases, is the real root of the, the mental disorder that they are suffering. And that can be very challenging. And this is also one of the main reasons why you want to have a trained professional that will know how to guide you. And when the situation becomes even scary, I would say, because many people can get afraid of like visualizing this kind of trauma in quite like terrifying visuals, like, I don't know, a huge scary spider that may represent neglect by your mother when you were a child. Uh, this can be extremely challenging for one individual to process by themselves. That so that's why it's like an awful trip, honestly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, from there, it comes the concept of the, of the bad trip that uh, goes uh, uh, beyond the, the clinic, of course. And that can have ter- terrible consequences for people using psychedelics uh, that don't have access to trained professionals. Actually, there are people that report symptoms very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder after a psychedelic trip. So that's why it's crucial that these drugs are only administered under controlled clinical contexts. 
Yeah, and also I understand that, for example, uh, you mentioned that people will re-experience a trauma uh, during the process. And to me, that uh, translates as to if something was traumatic enough the first time, re-experiencing it might leave you double traumatized afterwards. So uh, how does exactly will it help to re-experience the trauma, um, which to me it sounds very risky? Uh, definitely. Uh, in the case that uh, that happens, which uh, is, is not all the times, there are people that actually have very insightful experiences where they may visualize their past trauma, but at the same time, they may see new ways, uh, get uh, new perspectives they haven't uh, come up with before to deal with it. And actually, that's one of the reasons why some researchers think these people are getting better from depression and other disorders. But in the case that the the experience uh, becomes challenging intuitively we would uh, we would say okay like that's not what uh, you are looking for to submit a personal under such uh, psychological distress to an even more challenging uh, uh, experience facing them to their to their worst traumas but uh, actually this is something that is worked on a routine basis in conventional psychotherapy that is not assisted by any kind of uh, drug treatment or conventional antidepressants at worst. So the, in these clinical trials, the researchers actually report that even when the experiences are challenging, as they are able to later on or during the experience itself, go through it with people that know what they are doing, they actually learn a lot from those very challenging experiences. Okay, so now we had a nice background overview of what psychedelics are. So correct me if I'm wrong. What I understood is that these drugs are now illegal, but research is investigating them because they might have, they seem to have very promising effects in the treatment of diseases like depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, even stronger effects than well-established classic antidepressants. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. But what is it that you are doing? So what are you researching? Well, there is a lot of research that I would like to be doing with uh, psychedelics, but on my side, uh, I research the molecular and cellular mechanisms behind the long-term effects of psychedelics, which uh, in my view is what makes them interesting for their therapeutic use. What, what do you mean by long-term effects? By long-term effects, I mean uh, what I mentioned uh, in one of the previous questions that uh, these drugs seem to have a very long lasting effect with a single dose. That is what uh, makes them very different from uh, conventional antidepressants that need uh, daily intake for them to have an effect after weeks of starting the treatment. We don't really know uh, why this happens. Uh, you would be surprised how little we know about these drugs uh, and how they work, uh, both in the short and long term. But uh, very recent studies suggest that psychedelics seem to be very potent promoters of a neuroplasticity. This means that they make the adult brain very similar to that of a child in some ways, making it more malleable and able to change itself. That, in principle, would allow us to amplify the effects of uh, psychotherapy in psychiatric patients undergoing psychedelic treatment. For the people who are not from neuroscience, like me, and we are not very familiar with the terminology, you mentioned the word neuroplasticity. And I was wondering whether you could just very briefly explain us what it means so that we can follow up. Of course. 
Neuroplasticity is uh, the capacity that every brain has to learn and adapt to its environment. Our brains are very plastic when we are young, but this uh, plasticity decreases as we become uh, older. This is reflected uh, in a practical example, like uh, how easily a kid can learn a new language, for example, in comparison to an adult, very frustratingly for some of us. Your neuronal networks become more rigid and difficult to change as uh, you age. This is a problem when your brain is wired under the wrong circumstances. As a result, for example, of traumatic experiences as a child, we think that may be the underlying cause of many neuropsychiatric disorders. However, neuroscientists have discovered that there may be a second chance for the adult brain to become more plastic. There is a neuronal receptor known as a track B that when activated acts as a key to reopen a window of plasticity in the brain. This could uh, give us a chance to literally change our minds. Psychedelics seem to facilitate track B activation and I'm investigating how they do it and how can we take advantage of this to improve therapy. Tell me if I got it right. When we're young, the brain is very plastic and malleable, and it changes and rewires really quickly. And then as adults, this the brain becomes harder, stiffer. So if something happens in the brain when it's very plastic, so in young brain, like a trauma or something, the brain makes a bad connection. And as adults, that bad connection is stuck like that, leading us possibly into diseases. And these drugs would allow the brain to get soft again so that a psychotherapy would be able to fix that wire is that something like did i get it right that would be the idea yes uh, at least that is what uh, some neuroscientists uh, like myself uh, think that may be the case okay so these drugs we know they produce hallucinations and we seem to know now that they also treat depression so are the hallucinations part of the treatments or are they just a side effect of a drug that is actually acting somewhere else? In fact, it's uh, one of the most important questions that uh, psychedelic researchers are asking at the moment, because it's something that is uh, not clear at all. Actually, we have uh, two main lines of uh, thought uh, in this matter. One is that hallucinations would be necessary for the psychedelic therapeutic effect. And uh, in that team, you have researchers from uh, John Hopkins University or Imperial College that actually have published uh, some small studies that associate uh, mystical-like experiences or near-death experiences with uh, the better therapeutic outcome for the patients that had like this more, one could say, even spiritual experiences as compared to those that didn't go into that kind of very mystical experiences, but they still received the drug. And that's uh, how they kind of conclude or point out that uh, the hallucinations may be a crucial part of this. Here, I'm simplifying a bit uh, the term of hallucinations because usually hallucinations, uh, uh, we use that term to refer to the perceptual distortions that these drugs induce, but actually, uh, as I mentioned uh, in the introduction, the hallucinations are only a small part of what these drugs induce, because these drugs induce like much deeper and difficult to describe uh, 
internal experiences such as this ego dissolution and others that are not really experienced uh, yeah, yes. they're also very difficult to measure like yeah. creating any form of correlation how would you measure how dissociated your ego was yeah, definitely right definitely that is a challenge but still you would be quite surprised to see how uh, they develop uh, batteries of uh, tests that uh, actually take into account in my opinion many of the the aspects that uh, these drugs uh, may may induce so they're but, making batteries to measure how high you are i love uh, i'm joking i'm, I'm <laughs> maybe in, in a way i guess uh, how high into the mystical experience i think would, would be the the right way of putting from, it from normal to rick and morty how high you are <laughs> totally that's i i know i know this this is what they are doing for sure uh, then you have uh, the other line of thought that is uh, is not saying that these hallucinations or uh, intense psychedelic experiences uh, they don't say that they don't play a role, but uh, they propose that uh, it may not be needed or crucial for these drugs to have a therapeutic effect. And here uh, we are lucky that uh, just very recently a lab in uh, California Davis, the lab of David Olson, published a, a very a good piece of research showing that a non-hallucinogenic psychedelic analog, that's a, a drug that they develop that resembles a psychedelic, but doesn't have hallucinations or like okay, hallucinatory okay. I, I potential. I go slow here because my small dumb, dumb brain is losing you. So this guy <laughs> developed a drug that does not provoke hallucinations, yet it seems yet, to cure depression. Uh, well, at least in animal models, yeah. and uh, yes, it, maybe I wouldn't use the term cure depression, but what uh, he was showing was that uh, uh, ibogaine, that is a, a drug that is being researched for its potential to treat addiction, uh, well, it's a hallucinogen. And what they did was take this drug, modify it to the level that uh, it is in principle non-hallucinogenic, at least in the behavioral tests for mice that are related to the hallucinatory mm. hallucinogen potential in humans, it was still inducing the effects uh, of enhanced neuroplasticity that uh, classical psychedelics uh, induce, which uh, they proposed that uh, is what could be actually the, the important mechanism through which these drugs are inducing the therapeutic effect. It's uh, they would uh, reopen this window of plasticity in the brain of uh, depressed patients, of patients with addiction. And through that, they allow psychotherapy to have a more impactful effect on the brain of the, these people. In a way, it will allow their neuronal networks to rewire in a beneficial way. And this is uh, why they are proposing that the hallucinations could uh, not be completely necessary. Maybe you just need uh, psychotherapy. And this also would be interesting for all those people that we talked about that are being screened out because of their uh, predisposition to have a psychosis triggered by, by psychedelics. Oh, and that's right, because if you have, of course, if you remove that part, then you, I guess it's not a risk anymore for them, I assume. In principle, of course, like there is uh, much to be tested with these new drugs, which haven't been uh, tested in humans yet. 
but uh, it could be that's that that's the potential they could have not to mention that uh, there are many people that despite not having a predisposition for psychosis will be hesitant to undergo such a bizarre experience that will distort your perception perception and alter your normal state of consciousness so it could uh, amplify the target population that could benefit from the mechanisms of these drugs if I understood that right, this is a, a study that was conducted and published somewhere, but before we reach into uh, starting thinking about applying it, I guess it will need to be repeated or how confident can we be about these results? Definitely. This is a, a study that has been developed in preclinical models, so in animals and also in vitro. We have uh, been able to see the effects that these drugs have a uh, at a molecular and cellular level, at least to some extent, but uh, we are not sure that these effects uh, are taking place in the human brain. And also we don't even know if these drugs are hallucinogenic in humans because they have not been uh, tested uh, in them as far as I know. So uh, yeah, that will be a very important, uh, uh, some very important experiments that we need to do before proceeding with uh, further uh, experiments that will test them in clinical trials uh, for their therapeutic potential. But uh, in any case, uh, it was uh, published in uh, in the journal Nature, that is uh, quite an imp important and impactful journal in uh, the field of uh, biological sciences, right, yeah. like neuroscience. So uh, still much to be done, but uh, interesting, promising results nonetheless. So there's there's good hope that one day instead of taking Prozac to cure depression, we'll just you just eat a bowl of magic mushrooms and and speak to a psychologist. I mean that that sounds right. No, okay, that's no. I'm just giving the bad example. Don't do it. Yeah, Anyone. don't do that, people. No, okay, just yeah. Well, I no, mean, if, if, no, if your psychiatrist is, tells you to do that, then I, no, exactly, maybe yeah. I, I, no, would, I would consider that, it. But the thing is, if the alternative is taking Prozac for six months you know, one shot of psilocybin. Oh, I, I'll just stop talking. I'll just, you know. No, no, that's, that's, that's fine. I mean, that's, that's the idea in yeah, the case that it's done properly. It to, oh, sorry, sorry, Rafael, I was talking over you, but let's just leave it, leave it to the fact that if your psychologist uh, advise you to follow a treatment, listen to him, he's a doctor, he's experienced, he knows what he's saying, but uh, yeah, don't try it yourself. Yeah. And another important point, like, uh, at the moment, your psychiatrist or psychologist cannot propose you to undergo this kind of uh, treatment because the drugs are still categorized as uh, a Schedule 1, for instance, in the US, which means drugs that uh, are dangerous, uh, may have addictive potential, and don't have a therapeutic use yet. Like The only way that you can um, access these drugs legally is uh, through participating in a clinical trial that uh, has very uh, strict uh, screening condition, conditions to be accepted. And of course, is uh, very much uh, under the control of professionals like psychiatrists. It's not advised to take uh, these drugs illegally. And I assume that in order to enter a clinical trial, you undergo through some background checkup in order to make sure you're not like someone who's trying to like uh, find a way, access, like, you know, find access to illegal drugs. Well, as I mentioned before, these drugs don't seem to have uh, much potential for addiction. So uh, as far as I know, the clinicians behind these uh, clinical trials have not complained of uh, <laughs> having a line of uh, drug-dependent people wanting to have access to, to free 
uh, psychedelics. Like in, in your experience, right, how close is research to convince government and legislation to, let's say, remove these drugs from this, you called it Schedule 1 or something like that, and at least, you know, mm-hmm. at least acknowledge them as dangerous yet uh, clinically useful drugs? Well, I guess that will depend on the countries. Uh, certainly, there have been uh, steps taken, mm. particularly in the US, to uh, allow research to proceed with uh, less obstacles, like uh, legal and bureaucratic obstacles that uh, most psychedelic research or all psychedelic research researchers uh, have to face. Uh, but still, we are, I would say, quite far from uh, them being uh, approved uh, to be used in the in the clinic is very difficult to tell. Uh, there are some uh, steps being taken to decriminalize these drugs in some states in the United States. Uh, in Europe, uh, there are a couple countries that, as far as I know, have them uh, decriminalized. Decriminalized doesn't mean that they are legal. It means that uh, if the police were to catch you with these drugs, uh, they would not uh, find you. For it, you may not end up in jail for possession of uh, psychedelic drugs, but it still doesn't mean that it's legal to sell them. It's still like, of course, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but uh, still, I would say that we need much more research to make sure that uh, these drugs are completely safe, which seems to be the case. But we need uh, larger studies that reproduce the preliminary fundings we we have had. So before we see them approved, I would say that we still have. Uh, quite uh, some years of uh, research that needs to be done. Well, thank you so much for this. This Again, as I said in the beginning, the strawberry field of information. Is there... Okay, now I, we'll give you one last minute. The stage is yours. What is left that you want us to know about psychedelics? Well, uh, I would say that psychedelics are some of the most fascinating compounds known to humankind, and they may become very valuable tools to deal with mental disorders that are very difficult to treat. Psychedelics are also very useful to study the great mysteries behind the human consciousness and can tell us much about the way that we experience reality itself. But in all honesty, we still know very little about how psychedelics work or if they will become the revolutionary treatment that many would like to see in the clinics. To answer those very important questions, we need to do more research. Being the powerful substances that they are, it is, uh, in my opinion, not unreasonable that they are regulated. But at the same time, we must allow clinicians and neuroscientists to do their work. More often than not, there are too many legal and bureaucratic barriers preventing crucial research work to be developed. The research could potentially benefit thousands or even millions of patients in the long term, but it needs to be done in the first place. Being categorized as a Schedule One controlled substances is not helping researchers to advance at the pace that we should be advancing. In light of the evidence that we have accumulated so far, uh, to conclude, I would say that now would be a good time to adapt to regulations so that psychedelic research can proceed without so many obstacles. I really think that we owe this to the patients. Can we have an applause? Okay, thank you very much, Rafa, for this. Um, that that brings us to the, to the end of the episode. But before that, uh, I hope that probably our affectionate listeners know this. I don't know if you, Rafa, know this. At the end of each episode, we usually have a scientific fun fact. 
Eliana, mm. what you got for us today? So maybe some people know, but I think many people are not familiar with the fact that uh, space is completely silent. So whenever you see uh, sound effects in space in a science fiction movie, it's wrong. Yeah, there's usually this kaboom, like especially in Star Wars movies. Yes. Not only in Star Wars movies, but also more like, uh, let's say, movies that pretend to be more real yeah. uh, with astronauts in space and something happens. And then you hear you're out in space, like on a spacewalk, and then you hear how the astronaut navigates themselves and uh, there's some sounds. But the, that's not true uh, because uh, space doesn't have an atmosphere and the sound is a wave and it needs uh, a means to propagate through. So when space has no means for the sound to propagate through, then there's no possibility for the sound to be heard. And so the only way for astronauts, for example, to communicate is through radio waves because they can still propagate in space. And uh, so, yes, that's my fun fact for today. Like now space sounds a very boring place to shoot a movie. Yeah, I don't know if I would call it fun fact. You just destroyed like everything yeah. I, I, I got <laughs> from uh, Star Wars. Yeah. yeah <laughs> now, every time, every time I watch a space movie with a huge explosion, instead of just shoving popcorns in my mouth, super excited, I would say, ah, that's fake. Yeah, actually, that's how I feel every time I see a science fiction movie. Uh, and that's why I'm not a fan of science fiction movies. And I know many science friends will like uh, hunt me down for it. But uh, yeah, my brain always says, no, that's wrong. And you decided to ruin it for us all. Thank you, Leanne. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Well, um, yeah, the truth hurts. Did you know this, Rafa? Uh, well, I had heard something, but I resisted to believe it. But now that a physicist is telling me, then I, I guess that I will yeah, have to, have to, believe, it. Have to yeah. believe it. Yeah. yeah. But it's good. I mean, like, I think it fits very well to the conversation today, because if someone needs a bit of a quiet time to uh, think and try to understand what has happened in their lives, um, they need a science, uh, you know, a, a silent, not science, I'm sorry, <laughs> a silent uh, space then go to the real space yeah i mean just take the bus 550 it would just get you there right <laughs> the, the exactly. tesla tesla no a spacex uh... spacex yes well there, there's Maybe actually a soon. tesla flying around the earth right now that's did, did you know yes, that that's yeah right. yeah there, there is a what happened to that thing you mean the car yes remember well, the it's... car with the with the mannequin and, yeah, and, and, but um, and... I don't think it's uh, going around the Earth. It's just traveling. It's just left there through space. Yeah. Oh, really? With the, so, uh, yeah. Do, you, do you remember there was the? I think there was a button saying "Don't panic" as a reference to the Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> I, I I think I remember clearly that there was something like that. Okay. But I guess it will come without sound effects. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because right? because space is boring. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But also, don't quote me. I really don't know what happened to that car. My 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 thought was that it's uh, not uh, yeah going around Earth, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure it didn't come back. That would be no, no. Remarkable. Well, we, so someone would be launched, very unlucky if that somewhere. thing. And unless it event eventually ended up in the sun, but I think we would have known that. I don't know. I just good luck, car, wherever you are. Wherever, Maybe it's just yeah. parked in the International Space Station. They take just it park for... Yeah. <laughs> but can, can I say something? And also some people hate me. I mean, like we already, as uh, 
humankind um, have uh, deposited a lot of junk in space, mm. which causes problems uh, to uh, actual science going on in we space. We're so good at this, aren't we? Just junk, like junking stuff and making problems. Yeah, I mean, like we have junked Earth, so let's, uh, you yeah. know, junk space. Um, so I found it a little bit uh, irresponsible. I'm going to say that and leave it there. But can I say, just to defend, like most of us, at least for space junk, we really have no responsibility. <laughs> True. Yeah. I mean, uh, we bear some level of responsibility, but I understand that it was done without our acknowledge, acknowledging the fact that it's yeah. happening. Yeah. But um, yes. And okay. uh, I, I can people, promise you. Investor. Oh, I sorry, Juliana. I wanted to say to people to invest uh, science that will deal with space debris. Is that? That's a very good point. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So people are trying to figure out ways on how to eliminate uh, space debris in the future. So for future missions, how they won't become a space debris, especially in the near Earth space, um, but also find ways of uh, getting rid of existing space debris will be something interesting for the future. Hey, yeah, space just became fun again. Sign me up as a space trashman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if I ever heard of such a mission, I will put your name down, Rafael. <laughs> thank you very much, Eliana. Imagine that. Well, thank you very much, Eliana. This it was a, a couple of of in, incredible uh, fun facts. So space is boring and dirty, apparently. Uh, but anyway, thank you, Eliana, and thank you, Rafa, for this just just joining us and give us just all this amazing information on this um, very. How would I say it? Underestimated compounds, if I may. Um, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. So again, thank you, Rafa. Thank you, Leanna. Thank you, listeners. I'm Giuliano Didio. This was the Science Basement Podcast. I'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks to you guys. Bye. Bye. The Science If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. If you're interested in getting involved or being interviewed, get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.